Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The concluding verse of today's Gospel summons a very specific memory for me. I grew up in an Episcopal parish in the suburbs of Denver, and my mom was one of the main leaders of the guitar group. This was the 80s and early 90s. In my mind, I can still hear the strumming as I'm sitting on the floor of our living room, four or five adults gathered round singing. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. I won't make us sing through the song. Uh, Maybe it's one of your favorites. It isn't one of mine. The words were fine, but the minor key of the melody just didn't work for me. And unfortunately, the song is an earworm. To this day, whenever this verse comes up in daily prayer or on a Sunday, I am a little kid again, listening to the guitars. And I'm sorry if you go home humming the minor tune. But then, as now, the image in the song. The image of a Christian community known for its love is striking. Even as a child, I thought, what would it look like? What would it mean if in my city, in my nation, in my world, if my Christian community was known for love? Do people know we are Christians by our love? In my sermon at Easter, I mentioned that our denomination is being questioned in the public square. Folks are asking, are Episcopalians really Christians? The Episcopal Church has been criticized in recent days. Some commentators have questioned whether we are a Christian church. And as I said at Easter, I'm worried about the yardsticks we use to measure the Christian faith. I'm worried about the assumptions we make about what it means to be Christian. I think we need a new yardstick in this country. This week in Missouri, the stakes got higher. The questions faced in our state around religion weren't theoretical. It wasn't folks wondering, intellectually questioning whether our faith measured up. No. It got real, fast. I've been a priest for eight years. And for eight years now, I have entirely avoided the topic of abortion in the pulpit. I've avoided it for at least one obvious reason. As a cisgender white man, and as an openly gay one at that, I feel I have very little to say about what a woman should do with her body. But this week, in our state, the theological got political and it got dangerous. This week, I worried that my silence on the issue is complicit. I am responsibility for theology in this little church. I have to say something. The Episcopal Church is a church that asks for nuance. That's a hard place to hold in today's political environment. I believe that there can be spiritual value in holding tension. The Episcopal Church has, for many decades now, held two positions on abortion. The first position is this. All abortion has a tragic dimension. The Episcopal Church is not pro-abortion. All abortion involves loss. All abortion has a tragic dimension. 
At the same time, our church holds a second position. We have simultaneously, as a denomination, said legislation isn't the answer. Our church has taken a stance that any state or federal law, any judicial decision, which would prevent a woman from making an informed decision about the termination of her pregnancy, any decision or law that would limit access to a safe means to act on the woman's decision would be a violation of her human rights. I should also note that our growing relationship with members of the trans community only adds nuance to our denomination's stance. We are learning that there are times when someone who identifies as a man may also face choices about ending his pregnancy, and access may be even more difficult for him, for them. Our church's stance asks us to consider nuance, to hold tension. Our state just chose an entirely different path. There is no room for nuance in Missouri. Complexity has been pushed aside. Our state just passed one of the least nuanced and most restrictive laws in the country. As I said before, as a cis white man, I want to be careful in response. Rather than speak simply for myself, I will quote some women colleagues. First, Pastor Tracy Blackman, a UCC pastor from just a few miles up north in Florissant, a widely respected voice in the church around the country. Pastor Tracy wrote this week, the truth is, such oppressive laws will never stop those with resources, those with options. The truth is, those who want abortions and have means will still get them. It is the women without access, the women who are too poor to travel, the women who are too fearful of domestic violence to run, the women with limited options and limited resources who will be most impacted by this law. Such laws never stop abortion, they stop safe access. Words from Pastor Tracy Blackman. Laws like what passed in Missouri this week will not make abortion less frequent, will not make abortion less tragic. These laws will make abortion less safe. Another colleague, Pastor Amy, recently published her story of a late-term abortion. The pregnancy years ago, after her son was born, came as a surprise. But Amy Butler and her husband were excited to expect a little girl, a new addition to their family. She wrote of the routine appointment toward the end of her pregnancy when the doctor started pulling colleagues in to consult over the sonogram. Finally, the doctor stood around the bed and said that the baby was severely developmentally compromised. She would die at birth, if not before, after a few excruciatingly painful minutes of life. And continuing the pregnancy would be dangerous for the mother. It's your choice the doctor said. My colleague Amy Butler had no hesitation. It was important that her child not experience unnecessary pain. As she made her choice, she said she also wanted to give her family a chance to say goodbye, to grieve. It never occurred to her that someone else, her government, might have a say in what happened. Her heart was broken, 
The loss was awful, but the choice was obvious to her. She finished her article saying this, if a politician's words this week made you feel certain, or maybe even a little bit smug, that his position is the right one, then please consider my story. Allow for another narrative, and at the very least, reject the political strategy of impugning motives without hearing real people's stories. Then join me in building an America where every child has what she needs. Every little one has arms to hold him tight, and everybody's story is honored for the holy humanity it reveals about each one of us. I share the words, the stories of my women colleagues, of fellow pastors, because the theological this week became policy, dangerous policy. As I said, I have a role to play in articulating theology in this church. I'm worried that being silent means being complicit with a seeming Christian consensus on the question of abortion. But the church has never uniformly taught that life begins at conception. The Bible is of at least two minds about when life begins. The first is the most dominant in scripture. Life and breath go together. Adam's life in Genesis begins when God breathes into his nostrils. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus breathed his last. Life begins and ends with breath. One perspective. The other idea about life in Scripture makes things even more complicated. The Psalms are often quoted by opponents of abortion because God talks about knitting us in the womb. Beautiful, poetic language. But you have to read all of the Psalms. The overall sense of life in the Psalms comes in the verse, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before. In this perspective, life begins before conception. In this perspective, life in the Bible is more complex than chromosomes and cells and flesh and bone. Life begins before all that. Life continues after our body returns to ashes, dust to dust. Life in God is more beautiful and more complex than the body. You should know I do consider myself pro-life. I simply cannot identify with a pro-life politics that is only concerned with the life of the unborn. I am pro-life because I believe every child should be wanted, should know love. I am pro-life because I am anti-death penalty. I believe our state should not terminate the life of anyone, even a convicted murderer. I am pro-life because I believe our government should weigh real human cost before choosing war. I am pro-life because I believe we should know why. Why black women are more likely to die in childbirth. And we should pour money into this question and into researching other critical questions in women's health that remain unanswered. I am pro-life because I believe we should look at educational outcomes, at poverty, at hunger. Life matters to God. The lives of the poor, the hungry, the oppressed matter to God. I reject the narrow definition of pro-life we have allowed some Christians to invent. I can be pro-life and pro-choice at the same time. If it surprises you to hear a Christian pastor say you can be pro-life and pro-choice at the same time, 
Well, I offer Peter's story today from the book of Acts. Peter tells the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem how he chose to eat with Gentile Christians. In Joppa, he had a revelation. God commanded him to eat food that a Jew, someone keeping kosher, would never eat. God said to Peter, never consider unclean what God has made pure. Peter interprets these laws about food to be laws about people. Peter then goes into the home of Gentiles, people outside the covenant. He follows the spirit there, and he sees God breaking down the categories he had inherited. He sees the spirit descending on unexpected folk. Peter realizes the mission of God is going to be a lot more inclusive than he ever imagined. The church is going to be a lot more diverse than he ever thought. This Jesus movement is going to challenge his categories, his assumptions, his politics. This faith is going to be a lot more embracing and a lot more complicated than he ever imagined. Our faith asks us to hold together complex positions, to hold more nuance than our politics often allow. Our faith asks us to listen to the stories of people our society has has counted out, to listen for the ways God has been acting, especially among those who have been cast aside, ignored, silenced. Our faith asks us to honor life in all its forms and to protect life from birth to death with dignity. I end this sermon where I began, wondering how we measure our faith today. How do we measure our church How do we measure whether or not we are Christian? Jesus tells us pretty plainly, they will know you are my disciples by your love, by your love. I still wonder what that would look like. I think I've caught glimpses. When we've built community down at Classic Coin, paid for folks washers and dryers at Laundry Love, I've caught glimpses. I've seen folks catch a glimpse of what it means to be Christian when they are welcomed to a community in El Salvador, when they've been fed a generous meal by families who struggle to put food on the table each night. I've caught glimpses in Salvadoran faces, surprised to be visited by a group from North America, to meet a church community from the United States that knows what it is to fear and to work against gun violence. I've caught glimpses in the tears of folks surprised to see Christians marching in the LGBTQ plus pride parade. I've had moments when I believe I saw what it would mean to be a religious movement known for love, for reckless love, for unconditional Christ-like love. They will know you are my disciples by your love. I've seen it just a few moments at a time. I hope to see more. The last thing I will say is this. I know one thing about love. You can only love people you listen to. Think about it. In the midst of our frightening times, facing dangerous politics, you can only love people you listen to. What would it mean to be a Christian church? What would it mean to be known for our love? If we want an answer, 
We better keep listening. Amen. Amen.